Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity. My name is Matthew Lee Anderson. I'm joined by Alistair Roberts, Derek and Andrew. The rest of the crew are off and elsewhere doing other things. Uh, we are joined today by a special guest, someone who we're absolutely delighted to have on the show. I've been reading him for years, I think, which makes me feel old. Um, but it's been years of edifying reading. He, he has... I think written for mere orthodoxy back in the day. He's one of the most careful uh, and thoughtful uh, people working on the intersection of ethics and technology. Uh, Michael Sakakis, um, we're delighted to have you on the show. Michael is for our listeners. Um, he writes at thefrailestthing.com. He's the director for the center, uh, uh, center for the study of ethics and technology, which is a part of the Greystone Theological Institute, which is a, a cool little program. Uh, centered in Philadelphia. Is that right, Michael? That is correct, yep. Um, so it's a great little program. Uh, uh, Michael's you know, getting the center up and running. It's one of the only centers at a religious program that I know of that's ex- like explicitly and solely devoted to uh, reflecting on the intersection of ethics and technology. Michael, am I, am I overselling it? Are there lots of other things out there that are doing this that I don't know about? I think there there may be a, a few others. I, in, in fairness, none come immediately to mind, but I know that I've encountered um, a handful of places where, in, in different traditions, um, maybe not in the Reformed tradition that I can think of right now, um, but where there is a little bit of... Um, institutional de- dedication to this issue. I should mention to did you say Philadelphia? I think I concurred with Philadelphia. It's actually Pittsburgh. Um, uh, yes, ooh, I know, exactly. Ooh. I realized... <laughs> That's a, I, I realized how many different... Uh, with apologies right. to Pittsburgh. That, uh, they'll take that one personal. Right, absolutely not, um, please. <laughs> My wife's family is from Pittsburgh, so um, I realized how... how um, dangerous that that slip up. oh man so it's personal yeah. for you too that's, that's, that's an important <laughs> thing to, to get right um michael we're delighted to have you on the show so we want to talk about the relationship between ethics and technology with you of course unsurprisingly um you had a an, an essay recently where um you used the boromir meme from lord of the rings one does not simply walk into Mordor. Um, uh, but you changed it to, one does not simply add ethics to technology, um, which uh, I thought was amusing. Um, and, it, and it makes me wonder, does one complicatedly act, uh, add ethics to technology? Uh, how precisely are we supposed to add ethics and technology together? That is a great question. I, I should say that's the first meme I've ever made. So it was um, in it, it, it intrepid <laughs> ground that I was breaking there. Um, that uh, that post stemmed from a uh, what seems to be a, a lot of a, attention recently being drawn, and, I, and this is uh, chiefly through my reading of um, a handful of um, folks that I follow on Twitter that are interested in, in ethics and technology from a variety of different disciplines and, um, and backgrounds and um, there was a, a Twitter thread uh, by, by an actor who I was not really familiar with before who uh, apparently works on the HBO series Silicon Valley, and he went around interviewing um, some tech folks in the industry and in Silicon Valley, just his background work for the show, and, uh, and in this Twitter thread related how uh, shocked he was at how little 
reflection uh, they gave to the ethical consequences of their work. And um, uh, then all of a sudden he's getting retweeted 18,000 times. Um, folks are commenting on it. Uh, starts a little micro conversation as, as happens in little segments of Twitter. Um, and uh, I, of course, I was initially a little bemused by this because there, there are lots of people who have been talking about the ethical consequences of technology for a very long time. Um, and it, it seemed um, to him that, that nobody was asking these questions. Um, and so I began reflecting on that. And, um, and the, the point of that, that little meme in particular um, was simply to suggest that it is, it is complicated um, to, to suddenly become aware of the ethical valence of technology and to want to do something about it. Um, so some of the the issues um, are, you know, are first of all who, whose ethics are in view, um, and so there's always this this idea that to become aware of um, the ethical ramifications of technology sort of straightforwardly uh, leads to a uh, consensus about what ethical values ought to be instilled in technology. But of course we know that this is an eth ethically diverse society, and uh, there's um, very little consensus even with regards to um, to ethical visions and 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 a robust uh, vision of of the good life which I think ultimately is um, what needs to drive our reflection about uh, technology and its use so so it's complicated for that reason uh, it's complicated I think for um, for historical reasons our society Western society in general uh, is is deeply invested in this idea that that technology is neutral uh, with regards to ethical consequences, or or else that it is simply a positive good. Um, the uh, historian, the late historian David Noble, uh, in his work on the religion of technology, has highlighted just how um, important eschatological hopes have been in the development of technology over the past thousand years in the Western tradition, and and how they continue to animate in many circles. Um, and we think here of post-humanist, transhumanist visions, um, the the work of technology, and so um, if if it is uh, that deeply uh, ingrained in our in our tacit hopes for the future, and I and I think this is true both for um, non-believers, for Christians, for people of all varieties um, of theological background. Um, and then it, it becomes a little complicated then to um, to suddenly realize that maybe these technologies are not uh, not just not ethically neutral, but in some respects maybe bend uh, bend us in the wrong direction, so to speak. So I'll stop talking for a moment. Those are just a couple of the thoughts that, that were lying behind that um, that post. Hmm. No, that's helpful. I'll so I imagine that a number of people a number of people listening will be wondering how something that's just a thing or technology could actually have ethical ramifications. Um, and as Christians, we're committed to the goodness of creation. And this is just a, for instance, my computer, it's just a physical object. Um, why should it be seen as an ethical thing? Where do, isn't the ethics just a matter of the way that I handle it. Right. I yeah, to put it put a, to put the question uh, in a slightly different 
register, you talked about technology bending us in the wrong direction. Doesn't that seem to give these things a kind of agency that's that that they may or may not have? Right. So, so both of those variations on the question, I think, really get to. Um, I don't know the the chief sort of mystification that needs to be sort of dispelled when we think about technology. Uh, and again, it's this I, I sometimes jokingly refer to it uh, um, as the um, you know NRA view of uh, technology, right? So it's uh, you know the, the old slogan "guns don't kill people, uh, people do," which of course uh, it, it contains a truth in it, and I don't necessarily take issue with that. You're going to get us in so much trouble with this analogy. Well, you know, uh, (laughs) this is true. Um, So let me let me flesh it out a little bit. There is some truth to this. However, um, it's not the whole truth. Right. Um, And it um, and misses certain ways into which technology enters into our um, the sort of circuit between our our will, our mind, our, our hearts, our desires, our bodies, and then the world. Um, so I think for Christians especially, the way I'd like to approach this is to just recognize that we are embodied creatures. Um, we, you know, Jamie Smith has made a little kind of publishing industry out of out of this idea that he's popularized um, so helpfully. Um, we're not just thinking things. Hey, some of... Some of us, Michael, uh, have written a book on the subject even before Jamie Smith. The, so. the, the, the hipsters of embodiment. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, and I, that's true. That I, I'm aware of that, Matt. Um, and I, I think that's actually what first uh, drew me to, to your work was stumbling upon, upon that book. Uh, so I want to give credit where credit is due. But, um, but then, you know, as, as we know, the, the, the body is a tremendously important facet of our human person. And, um, and it's a reminder that the material world is also, uh, it's not just something that's good that we affirm, but it has, um, it has an impact on us. We're shaped by it just as we give shape to it. Um, one, one, I think, easy way of thinking about this is um, to think about it in terms of how our tools may shape our perception. Um, this is sort of my default entry into this conversation. Um, you know, we, we may have heard the, the expression that uh, even to the person with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, or more recently, we may say that to the person with uh, a, a camera on a smartphone, everything looks like a possible picture to be taken. Um, we when we have a tool or device in hand, the things that tool or device make possible suddenly enter into our consciousness. Um, they, they take the shape maybe of, of um, invitation to the good or temptation to the bad. Uh, so it is not necessarily that the technologies uh, make us do this, that, or the other thing. And I think there is a fine line to be walked um, between uh, sort of conceiving of the human being as and an unthinking automatic slave to a tool that wherein the agency lies wholly with the, the tool, the device, or the, the technological environment. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, reversing that and thinking that the, the tool is wholly indifferent, it plays no role, and that all ethical uh, consequence lies simply in the choice that we make. Um, tools uh, shape our perception, again, creating a structure of temptation or desire that may not have been there otherwise. They form habit habits. Um, you know, I think one important way of approaching the ethics of technology is, is, is through maybe a slightly more virtue ethic type of approach, rather than 
uh, focusing on, on points of decision, but rather looking at um, the kinds of habits that are formed that lead to dispositions and inclinations of the heart uh, through our use of technology. Um, those are all ways in which technology without necessarily making us do a bad thing or a good thing are nonetheless um, a factor in the kind of ethical, um, searching for a word here, sort of the, the ethical nexus of, of, our, of our being. You used the word um, tool alongside the word technology. Do you think there's a difference between the two? And do you think that that difference is part of what makes modern technologies um, maybe ethic ethically significant or um, threatening in a way that a traditional tool might not be? That's a very good question. And, and in fact, I, I should make it a, a kind of rule whenever I talk about technology that to, to even uh, to just define that word at the outset, um, because it does a lot of work sometimes um, without our being aware of it. Uh, I, uh, to be honest, at this moment, I was actually um, being a little uh, careless with the, with the distinction, not meaning anything too precise by it. But there is a, a lot of debate about what exactly, how we would define, how do we define technology? Um, and I think different authors, um, even um, in just ordinary conversation, we might make um, distinctions between you know, devices and tools uh, and, and mean the word technology to maybe just encompass recent computer technology and forget that, you know, something like a pencil or your refrigerator is a technology because they've kind of um, sunk into the background uh, furniture of our, of our experience. Um, so I, I wasn't meaning any specific distinction there, but I, I think that there is, if we were to, to start thinking about these different terms, um, it would be useful to maybe clarify uh, what we mean by it. Uh, in some respects, technology is, is um, that, that term, that word, is fairly recent, um, gaining in popularity only really through the early part of the 20th century and, um, and onward. Uh, other phrases used to be used in place of it, the mechanical arts, for instance. Um, and um, the historian Leo Marx has a, uh, a couple of great little essays where he discusses the the, the semantic history of technology and and links the the popularity of the term with the appearance of large-scale technological systems um, beginning with the railroad but certainly gaining steam in the middle of no, no pun intended in the middle of the um, 20th century and that the word that can mean so many things to so many different people, satellites in space, medical technology, our cars, our phones, um, the pen that we used to write with. It, in some respects, is useless because it means so many different things. Um, but in another respect, it captures um, a sense in which we may be um, entwined in a, in a thicker net of, of the human-built world um, than our ancestors were. Uh, there, there's there's been technology always and forever, one might say, um, but the shape of contemporary technology certainly appears to be more pervasive. It escapes our, our easy manipulation. Um, we sometimes feel ourselves to be manipulated by it. Um, it takes the, the feel of a system against which we can't um, necessarily gain any meaningful traction. Uh, and, and I think the word technology maybe captures that um, in a certain sense, and that's the case that um, 
that Marx makes, and I think there's something to it. Langdon Winner um, says much the same thing in his book, uh, Autonomous Technology. Michael, when we think about sort of morally evaluating different technologies um, and our own response to them, I think it's 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 easy on in one way or it's easier at least to morally evaluate technologies that have been developed intentionally for ends that we would uh, already think would be intrinsically morally wrong so uh, in the 20th century the, the development of nuclear power um, for the sake of developed in the first instance for the sake of a weapon that, I think is probably uh, the use of which would be intrinsically morally wrong. Um, and in those sorts of cases, the question becomes, what do we do with the uh, non-necessarily morally problematic um, byproducts that come out of that original research and those uh, those original ends? I'm curious about, uh, like, that's that's usually what we think about. I'm curious about the other side of things. Um, things that are developed for um, sort of morally benign and even uh, very morally good purposes that unintentionally to the creators have um, uses that they didn't anticipate for um, moral badness that... Uh, overtake the original uses, right? Such that we forget to use it or we, we don't use it for the original. Does that sort of thing ever happen? How should we think about technologies uh, as, as users in those sorts of contexts where, um, and, and for those who are creating technologies, is, is it possible to create a technology and constrain it to what one is creating it for? Or is it just intrinsically the case that in creating this thing, you're sending it out into a context where it's going to be used for all sorts of things that you uh, m might object to? And how do you think through the, the sort of implications of that? Okay, that's a, a great series of questions. Um, I let me, let me maybe start with um, the... The, the example of a seemingly benign technology. Um, so at, and, and I don't know, maybe it's questionable how benign it, it was even from, from its outset, right? But I it immediately, something like Facebook comes to mind. Um, yeah, good, good. Yeah, so um, now re, uh, one of the, I think the first um, uh, president of, of the company, uh, Sean, and his last name is escaping me now, recently gave an interview where where he talked about how how even from the the beginning their initial design decisions uh, were geared towards um, for for lack of a better word, sort of addicting users to to the site. Um, so even here, it's a little questionable how how benign it may may have been even from the outset. But I think for most users at the outset, it seemed like a fairly benign tool, one that connected you with um, with old high school friends or just with friends in college or were going their separate ways, uh, a way of keeping touch with family. Um, I know that um, you know a lot of uh, grandparents like to use Facebook because it allows them to keep touch with their grandkids at a distance, and and all of this uh, seems like a perfectly um, you know benign and helpful and useful and even fun. Um, way of using the, the, the particular platform. 
But of course, we've seen um, in very recent times how that how that platform can be um, weaponized, uh, for lack of a better word, um, through what it enables, through the data that it collects, and I don't know that I don't know that one can ever predict fully all of the potential ways in which a, a, a device may or may not be used or project uh, fully all of the, uh, to develop a kind of perfect cost-benefit analysis uh, and proceed from there. Um, there's maybe a sense in which even that, that posture um, is still kind of part of the problem where, where we think that we can rationally master um, the, the reality before us and, and give um, or exercise kind of complete control over it. That said, uh, it does seem, and, and not just based on um, the observations that this actor made, but um, hearing many voices from the industry, uh, thinking specifically of um, Silicon Valley now, um, where there, there has been initially little uh, thought given to the ethical consequences of, of the tool. Um, I actually recently just saw an interview with um, a, a spokesman for the company that developed a, a drug that contains uh, a tracking device, and so that you're, uh, the FDA recently approved it. I don't know if you all saw this story come across. And, um, and so the, the interviewer, or the, the spokesman was asked if he was concerned that this technology could be used for less benign purposes, um, like tracking uh, felons, for instance, against their uh, without their awareness. Or he gave a couple of other examples, and the spokesman said, "Well, that that was neither our our intention nor our expectation," and sort of waved off the concern in that way, uh, as as if all they were responsible for was what they consciously intended and expected. Um, in some respects, this is sort of the, uh, the story of Frankenstein, which is a little cliche, um, but is actually a very sophisticated um, tale. But it does raise the question of responsibility. Um, what what responsibility does a creator have for what it brings, what he or she may bring into the world, uh, and the ways in which that tool uh, is used by others? Um, I think that it's it's something that. Uh, those who create technology um, would do well to certainly think about and consider and think about the ethical ramifications of of their design, um, whether or not that will ever preclude the possibility of of these tools being used um, in in less savory ways, or or even frankly, it's not just a matter of um, someone with uh, mal uh, malign intent uh, misusing tools or, or or weaponizing them in in certain respects against culture, society, or individuals. It's it's the, the real concern for me often is the much more subtle way in which um, perfectly ordinary tools that are not necessarily being put to any malign uses nonetheless undermine maybe some of the virtues that we would want um, to see cultivated within us. Um, you know, our, our capacity for patience, our, um, um, our, our interpersonal habits, the degree of attention that we give to the, to the person in front of us, um, these are affected, I think, by the habits of attention that are formed uh, in our perfectly benign use of, um, of digital technology. And 
It's not that we were ever putting this technology to explicitly malign uses, but it has nonetheless cultivated habits in us that um, I think if we were to step back and reflect, we would see as, as problematic. Our inability chiefly, again, to, to, to give due attention to the person who is in front of us, um, to undistractedly um, care for, for those who are um, our fellow human beings and in our, in our, in our presence. I think a number of people increasingly feel a sense of being trapped by the techniques that are at work within our technologies, particularly on the internet and social media and other places like that, where the technologies are explicitly built as means of ordering society and, and its forms of communication and affiliation. Um, one thing I found helpful to think about is this the struggle of what um, Scott Alexander calls multipolar traps, where, um, for instance, the prisoner di prisoner's dilemma is a good example, where you have two prisoners that don't have communication between each other, and if either of them gives the other up, then um, they'll go free and the other will be imprisoned, whereas if they both give each other up, then they both be imprisoned, if they both say nothing, then they're both okay. Now, neither of them knows what the other's going to do. And if the optimal situation is one in which they both are free, but neither of them knows what's going to happen. And so in that sort of situation, there is the lack of that coordination mechanism between them. And I think that's what often we're experiencing within the context of social media, that there's this, and within our technology more generally, um, another example is <laughs> we would like to live without a lot of the um, the wars and the other things that we have. But since we can't coordinate with people effectively about these things, we just have to um, build up more and more armaments. Now, if there was some way to coordinate and to overcome this, then it would be easier. But often it's not a malign intent on the part of other people. Often it's just the fact that our technologies form um, frameworks of decision-making that leave us powerless to resist um, the dangerous dynamics that drive us into um, forms of life that just aren't effective for any of us. So, for instance, it is incredibly hard to opt out of Facebook now and other social media because... As some people have described it, Facebook is a lobster trap with your friends as bait. And if you opt out of having a mobile phone, for instance, um, people will complain about you not being in contact. Um, and in many of these, many of these technologies that we have, and more generally, I mean, those are fairly um, limited examples of this, but much of our technology creates contexts and incentives for action that... We can recognize a bad for us, but yet we cannot develop a coordination mechanism sufficient to address that and to overcome it because the technology is just enacted on such a grand scale and it works through social pressures and other things like that. And it seems to me that that's a particular aspect of ethical challenge with modern technology that maybe goes beyond um, more traditional technologies. No, I, I think that's a very good analysis. Um, it, uh, it, re it recalls um, 
uh, a phrase that uh, historian Thomas Hughes um, coined, uh, technological momentum. Um, certain systems um, are very malleable early on, uh, but once they are widely adopted, widely accepted, uh, once they, a certain infrastructure, uh, whether that be a, a technical infrastructure, uh, a lot of Hughes's early work was on the power grid, uh, or whether that's a kind of, um, maybe to uh, be more metaphorical about it, a kind of social uh, infrastructure, an infrastructure of social expectations uh, develops around it. Um, it's very hard to, to it, the malleability goes away, it calcifies, and it's very hard to opt out, it's very hard to work against it. Um, and I think that's a very, very good way of thinking about how technologies um, gain a certain hold over us. And, and often, again, never um, in, in those initial uses, as, as the technology is emerging, uh, I think most people feel that they, they have agency over their use of that technology. Um, they're choosing uh, to use it. Um, they, they are maybe thinking, you know, I can, I can use it only so far or I can limit its use um, in certain ways. But then as the, the use of it evolves and develops and grows, and um, it, it becomes a little bit harder to, for us as the users to draw the lines. Um, you know, I think of the problem of email um, and the way in which it has um, helped work spill the boundaries uh, of the office, uh, and, and not just email, of course, but our, our connectivity in general. Um, and so a, a useful tool that maybe is just seen as a way of it more efficiently communicating um, now all of a sudden creates new, or not all of a sudden, but over time creates new expectations about the, your availability, um, how, what other people um, expect you to do or when they expect you to do it and when they expect you to be able uh, to respond to them. And it's, it would be very hard to say, well, I don't like to live this way. Uh, because to, to say no, in a sense, I'm thinking, for example, if, um, you know, if you're an employer or a business person and, um, you know, frankly, even as a, um, I work in education, right? And so as a, as a teacher, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to kind of combat these expectations once they're, they're, they're set um, because it, it then reflects negatively on you. It, it, a social cost incurs um, and... And so you feel yourself to be in a kind of, uh, of, of dilemma. I wonder, I wonder about the response to that, this problem, you know, if part of the purpose or nature of these technologies is to veil the costs from us, um, to, to make them invisible by virtue of the technology's u ubiquity, um, whether that the response demands a kind of adopted eccentricity, um, a, uh, a a sense that one doesn't participate just for the sake of I don't know prophetically standing outside these um, practices and and for the sake of preserving a, a a reminder of a kind of mental health that um, these technologies are in one sense working against. I think about photos. Um, I've I've for years had this conversation with uh, a group of very dear friends in Phoenix about um, why I just like hate photos uh, when we get together and spend time as friends. Um, 
And part of the argument there is that they, uh, the taking of photos replaces the kind of story, the taking of photos and the looking mm-hmm. at, at photos replaces the kind of storytelling mm-hmm. that would have once gone on about these events. So I think my wife and I have looked at the photos of our wedding maybe mm-hmm. once in the 13 right. years. Uh, and I, and I, I objected to having even professional photos yeah. done at our wedding, which that one didn't go <laughs> over well. Like that one, you know, um, I, I learned my, my, the boundaries of this argument very right. quickly. Um, but I do wonder, like, is, is adopted eccentricity, is that, is that the thing that we should be, uh, you know, focusing on? Should we just uh, refuse to participate in these environments uh, uh, because of what they're doing to us? So in, in short, I think sometimes that is the, the appropriate response. Um, you know, it, it is interesting, a, a, a couple of things. One, I, I think the, the Amish are a good example to us in this, um, in a couple of ways. Um, they, they, the, the popular image, I think, is, is of the Amish being very anti-technology, just um, period and in principle. Um, but uh, it's, it is actually a little bit more more complicated than that. Um, they sometimes do um, commission folks within their community to to adopt certain technologies in order to weigh uh, the moral and communal consequences uh, of that technology. And so they make make decisions uh, on its use, whether it, it should be used at all or within very limited parameters. Um, and they're willing to to adopt only in keeping with um, their, uh, for lack of a better term, their, their, their cultural values, right? And they're very savvy in the sense that they recognize how uh, a technology that may be very useful, very helpful economically or in terms of productivity, for example, or for convenience sake, will nonetheless have communal ramifications um, that will undermine their, their vision for, for the good life, for the good community. And I think that it, it wouldn't be useful to, to adopt a, um, um, a kind of a contrarian posture just as a matter of course, right? Oh, this is new. A kind of get off my lawn attitude with regards to technology. This is new. I don't like it. Uh, that disappoints me immensely, Michael. <laughs> you have no idea how much that disappoints me. Um, I mean, you could play that role, you know, just for... Um, for, for appearances' sake, it's sometimes fun, but um, but I I do think sometimes uh, it, you know McLuhan has this wonderful line uh, where he talks about understanding as a form of resistance. Um, and I think we ought to seek to understand, and and sometimes this may require kind of experimentation. Even I think even just becoming aware of the ethical valence of our technology is a huge step forward. Uh, you know the. The greatest problem uh, is sort of sleepwalking into these states because we don't recognize that the technologies are ethically consequential. We think of them as being essentially neutral tools. But I think once your eyes are sort of open to to their ethical ramifications, which is not to say automatically that they are bad or good. Um, the, the historian Melvin Kranzberg has a, a kind of a well-known list of um, rules of technology, and, and the first is technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. Uh, so it's, it's not even a question of jumping to the conclusion that this is bad, uh, but just beginning from the position that this is not a neutral tool. It will impact, um, or device or technology, but it will impact 
me, my family, my household, my society. Um, and so then asking the question, how will it impact? What will it do? Uh, what effects will it have? And then weighing those as far as we're able with wisdom and, and judgment um, against what we desire uh, as as the good that, that we will pursue as individuals, as families, etc. Um, you know, the the uh, your observation about how the um, you're questioning the photographer's presence at your wedding didn't go over well. Uh, it kind of reveals something in that we we can't really go at this alone. Um, we we cannot make these decisions. Um, in I mean, some decisions we can make for ourselves in in, in a sort of solitary fashion. But very often, what we need is a community of support. I think this is one of the other um, lessons that the Amish uh, teach us. And uh, without that, it can be very hard to sustain um, the kind of commitments that we might want to sustain with regards to our use of, of technology. Um, I, I know you all have, um, on the on Near Orthodoxy and on the podcast have talked a lot about uh, Dreher's Benedict Option, and, and I have no sort of final uh, position on it. Uh, but I think one thing it gets right is that we we cannot go this go at this alone. Um, we need robust communities where the the vision for the good life is sustained by its practices and its and the commitment of it, of its members. Um, otherwise, it becomes increasingly hard. Uh, and even those communities are going to be nested within the wider society that sometimes it feels like a kind of juggernaut against which we cannot, you know, effectively resist. But um, maybe that's the case. Maybe it's not. But, but certainly uh, becoming aware of the ethical valence of technology and um, seeking to adopt cautiously, if at all, um, and, and I, I like your, your phrase, uh, adoptive eccentricity, being that I think can have, that, that's certainly an important part of the, of the whole of our tools. Well, if anyone's going to guide us through the disenchantment of uh, our contemporary uh, technological uh, atmosphere, Michael, uh, I, I'd like it to be you. I'm uh, grateful for your work. Uh, keep, keep going. The frail, uh, com is where you can read more of Michael, and you absolutely should read more of Michael. Um, we need to get you back at Miro uh, writing about these things as well. Um, uh, thanks so much for joining us. We, we really appreciate it. It's a really substantive, really thoughtful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great, great fun. For those of you who are listening at home, we are grateful for your time and attention. Um, if you did enjoy it, go give us uh, a rating and a review on iTunes or elsewhere. We're grateful for your support. Tell a friend. Uh, let us know if you have questions, uh, discussion topics that you'd like us to take up. We always are interested in hearing from our listeners. Uh, and until next time, uh, be well and be good.